Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our Hemonk Emergency Series, this time covering another pretty scary diagnosis that inevitably is going to come in the middle of the night, TTP. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what that means. And I, I'm excited for this episode, one, because I feel like we've been referring to TTP for a really long time now on our show, and we've never really got a chance to talk about it. So we finally get to demystify what these three letters mean for our listeners. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one because it's, again, another emergency that everybody needs to know about. But also, I think it's really messed up, at least when in the first aid that I studied for, for step one, the mnemonic was fat RN. And I just think that's totally, really messed up. It was like fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal dysfunction, and neurologic symptoms. And I was shocked that that was the case. So maybe we shouldn't say that in this podcast. Well, I mean, it's just such a missed opportunity, right? Because those same letters spell fartin. And it's just like, that's so much easier to, to remember for me. I don't know. Uh, I had never heard that mnemonic. <laughs> I think we should Dan, keep... I, I, never, I never thought about it that way. Huh. Maybe maybe this is an opportunity Wait, is, for... is fat or a real mnemonic? It is, that... it is a real... It is that, real. that was a thing, right? Yeah, that's the real. Okay, and then I, I like that... Okay, that was perfect. We, we can include it in the podcast because of yeah. what you just said. Um, Dan, I, I never really <laughs> thought about it that way, but you know, maybe this is something that we we should consider selling to like the USMLE uh, Step One Study Book. I, I think First Aid could really use a, a little bit of a sprucing act, something a little bit it, more politically correct. You know, I mean, Dan, Dan should rewrite USMLE. I mean, he, his mnemonics are. Just, I mean, that's just amazing. That's that is uh, that's thanks, pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, we've been we've been talking a little bit offline about merch. Maybe that can be our first shirt. Just write down the side, spell I, it out. I, I would I would definitely buy one. I think our listeners would too. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and get into this episode. I'm super amped. Let's go. Hey guys, how's everybody doing today? You know, Ronak, I've been better. I uh, in a previous episode, Ronak had sliced his finger while uh, uh, with a serrated knife while cutting bread. I did something kind of really bad. I got this new knife off our wedding registry. Amazing knife. I was chopping a red onion to make some Peruvian green chili sauce, and my thumb. And I was trying to get the edge of the onion. And my thumb slipped forward and just sh- had a shave injury of my thumb. Had to tourniquet my thumb. Uh, squeeze out the blood and put some Dermabond on it. It was, it was a wild time. Luckily, I have uh, friends that do emergency medicine because internal medicine trained people, I was I was in my head like, I have no idea what to do here. I mean, yeah. I guess it's a good thing you didn't decide to jump on a podcast for an hour and a half holding a napkin the entire time as your hand was gushing. So uh, maybe, maybe you took away <laughs> something from my really uh, unfortunate experience. I 100% did. That was absolutely ridiculous. Just just a blood-soaked napkin. Of, like, Ronak, what are you doing? But, you know. <laughs> Dan, anything going on with you? Uh, not too much. Um, I'm just, uh, I was going to say, yeah, Vivek, you look a little pale. I think you, you probably dropped a, a gram per deciliter or something. Uh, uh, I'll put it, I'll put slice. the request in for IV iron for him Perfect. in your clinic for Monday. Perfect. Outstanding. Yeah, 500. <laughs> I, I had a feeling that's where you were going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, guys. Well, you know, if it's okay with you, I've got another case for you guys. 
Yeah. Let's go for it. All right, cool. So this is a case that I had when I was on call a couple of weeks ago. And naturally, this was one that came in the middle of the night because like, when else would this ever come to the hospital? So this is a case of a 38-year-old female with a past medical history of high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, who came to the ER with several days of headaches, abdominal pain, and some nausea vomiting associated with it. In the ER, her her temperature was at 101.1 degrees Fahrenheit, heart rate was 115, blood pressure was 110 over 80, and she was satting 98% on room air and breathing 14 uh, breaths per minute. She had a CMP that was done that was notable for a creatinine of 1.8. Her baseline from a few weeks before that was 0.9, and a total bilirubin elevation to 3.4. On the CBC side of her panel, she also had a hemoglobin of 9.4, which was previously 12.2, again from a few weeks ago, a white cell count of 11.4 with a normal diff and platelets at 28,000. So essentially a patient that's 38, that's with uh, fevers, um, that's tachycardic, uh, with what looks like maybe an AKI, some uh, bilirubin elevation, and new anemia and thrombocytopenia. Um, and so the page was to help them with kind of the workup in the setting of new thrombocytopenia and anemia. Yeah, that's always scary. You know, whenever you see anemia and thrombocytopenia together in a patient who isn't obviously bleeding, uh, the list of things that that could be is, is a pretty scary one. It, exactly like what Dan was saying, you always, no matter what, even if it's probably not going to be the case, convince yourself it's not what we're going to talk about, which is TTP thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura when you have an anemia and a thrombocytopenia. And, you know, in the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about some things related to platelets. And so I think the same differential diagnosis, if I'm not mistaken, would apply here. So things like clumping, ITP, HIT or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, TTP, um, severe DIC or alloimmunization in a heavily pretreated patient that gets transfusions quite often. Is that is that consistent with a d- good differential for this case? I think that's fair based on the pretty severe degree of the thrombocytopenia, that, that that's things that you really want to think about in your differential diagnosis. We talked about in one of our previous episodes when you have a platelet count that's less than five or undetectably low. This is the differential, but somebody coming in pretty sick with a platelet count of 28,000, you you definitely want to put these on your list, including all the other things that we've talked about in our prior episodes about thrombocytopenia. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, I would definitely point out that that elevated creatinine and the elevated bilirubin in in the context of the CBC changes, that's, that's what's really sending my antenna all the way up. So, so then, Dan, if, if, you know, based on what your concerns are and what your worries are, what would be your general approach to work up in this situation? And I guess, you know, uh, I'm assuming you're going to include some lab work. So maybe if you could highlight the things that are probably most important to send off, uh, you know, prioritize sending off than other, than other values as well. Sure. I, I think this is one of the situations where, before I even call the team back, like if I see the page and I'm just like looking at the patient's chart real quick before I call, I'm, I'm not even going to call the team right away. I'm going to call the lab first and say, hey, get the smear cooking for me, please. Because that's that's going to be the first thing I want to look at in this case. After that's done, I will call the team back and, and ask them to send off uh, an Adam TS 13 level. That's the next thing I'm going to want. Just because you want to know that you have that sample in the lab before anything else happens to the patient. We'll talk about why that's important later on in this in this 
same discussion, I'm sure. But those are the first two things that I want to do for this person. After that, um, you definitely want to get a repeat CBC. You know, we can get all excited, but if it turns out it was just a lab error, then, then we're going to feel really silly. And uh, with that, you'll also want to get a reticulocyte count. Um, if we are worried about the possibility of blood breaking down, which I am, the body tends to mount a really brisk reticulocytosis in response to that. Uh, so that's just another piece of data that kind of tells you which direction you're pointing. You can send off a citrated platelet count. I think in the setting of all these other biochemical changes we're seeing in this person's metabolic panel, that is less likely to show us anything different. But, you know, it's, it never hurts to be thorough in these cases when you're working up thrombocytopenia. And then you want to round out a, a complete set of coags, and that includes a fibrinogen level. As far as working out the potential for hemolysis, thinking about intravascular blood breakdown and, and seeing that elevated bilirubin, you can help support that with a haptoglobin and LDH. And then finally, just, you know, again, with this, the idea you want to be thorough and systematic when you're working up thrombocytopenia, still look for those infectious causes um, with your viral sort of serologies, HIV, HIV, HBV, HCV. And so, you know, in this case, again, as we've been highlighting, the smear can provide so much information about about what could be going on. Thankfully, I have been hanging out with you guys quite a bit this year. So I did exactly what you said. So uh, nice. a pat on the back for this first year fellow. Um, right. So I, I was, you know, just to fill you guys in on, on the case so far. So the smear did in fact have schistocytes. I saw decreased platelets. I didn't see any clumping. And so that was consistent with the repeat CBC that was pretty much the same and the citrated platelet count, which had platelets of 27,000. So essentially the same. Vertics were elevated. Coags were normal. Fibrinogen was normal. LDH was slightly elevated. Uh, haptoglobin was undetectable. And then the HIV and hepatitis serologies were all still cooking. But of course, and you know, those likely wouldn't have changed my uh, acute management in this situation. So, you know, with concerns for schistocytes, evidence of hemolysis based on uh, some of the, the workup that we have so far, especially with also that T Billy elevation from before, this acute drop in hemoglobin, acute drop in platelets. Just as Dan said, I was concerned for TTP. And so my next phone call was to the attending on call who also agreed with that possibility in our differential. And it, that, that was a great workup laid out by Dan. And, and it really, let, it's leading us down to the right diagnosis in this case. Um, one of the things that, that I want to point out and some of the workup that we got, one, the reticulocyte count. So one of the things that was difficult for me when I was a resident is we learned about this absolute reticulocyte count, a reticulocyte proliferation and index, and I never really knew which one to use, what each of these things meant. And I would always calculate this reticulocyte proliferation index, which is really basically telling you that based on your degree of anemia, this is a, sort of a normalization factor about what you'd expect your reticulocyte response to be. And I, I always hung my hat on that 100%. And in reality, it's it's a good test, but it's not a perfect test. So keep that in mind. An elevated reticulocyte count, regardless of what that proliferation index is, it's still telling you that your body's trying to make more red blood cells. If that's not in the quote-unquote right range that is listed when you look at those values, it doesn't mean that you don't have a hemolytic anemia going on. So that's one thing I wanted to point out. And the same thing is true if we get things like immature platelet fractions. When we get tests like that, you know, when we're thinking, okay, well, if we have something like ITP, we would expect the 
immature platelet fraction to be high because your bone marrow is trying to churn out platelets. That's not always the case. So these, these tests are supportive, but not perfect. And so, you know, we, as I've been saying, like we've been talking about TTP for what feels like weeks now on our show, and we've never really defined what that is. And in this case, it turned out to be a case of TTP. So I think the moment we've all been waiting for, maybe we should talk about TTP. Yes. I think this is a great uh, idea. So I, I'm happy that we're finally here. Uh, this is the this is the example we always bring up whenever we talk about how benign hematology is a misnomer, right? This is uh, the classic extremely dangerous um, hematology, benign hematologic condition. Before we kind of knew what we were doing with treating this, and we were kind of shooting in the dark with how to support these patients, in the say, you know, 1970s era, uh, mortality was in excess of 90% uh, for patients who would come in with this. And a lot of that is just because small blood vessels, turns out, spoiler, really, really important in the body. The microvasculature of your, of your brain, of your kidneys, of your heart, all of that in, can get affected by this condition. And the, the classic pentad that you'll read about in your, you know, as you're studying for step two and, and all these other, um, sort of textbook learning, uh, arenas is presentation with fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, kidney disease, or, uh, sorry, AKI, and, uh, neurological changes. Um, like, you know, anything from a little bit confused to fully obtunded. That is something that was more common back before we knew how to recognize this condition early. And back before hematologists everywhere were freaked out about ruling it out all the time. And so it's rare that you'll end up seeing somebody who's gotten that far into the disease uh, to have all of those things present. But that is something to know about. And what this is, is it's a, like the condition says, you know, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. So it is a condition that causes a lot of tiny little blood clots to form throughout the body. And as a result, it also causes severe thrombocytopenia because you're consuming all of your platelets in these tiny little thrombi. The way that happens is because of a deficiency in a certain enzyme called ADAMTS13. It stands for a disintegrant and metalloproteinase with thrombospondin-like one repeats. A little, little arbitrary as to why, uh, why it's called that. But its job is essentially to chop up von Willebrand factor, which is one of our very important clotting proteins. And... This, this protein, uh, this clotting factor is a multimer. It's a kind of a long spindly protein that gets secreted out of our endothelium and other cells. And as it's coming out and as it's involved in trapping platelets, certain parts of it get exposed that can be chopped up by ADAMTS13. And so if ADAMTS13 is deficient, and in this, in the case of most cases of acquired TTP, we're talking about an autoantibody directed against ADAMTS13. These high, extremely long, extremely high molecular weight multimers of von Willebrand factor will end up circulating and activating platelets sort of diffusely. And that's what ends up causing this microangiopathic hemolytic anemia or thrombotic microangiopathy. So I'm almost picturing like this really long arm, like coming out and just, you know, giving high fives to the platelets and reeling them in. And, and I don't, I feel like every time I look at this picture, just like this little wormy like thing kind of hanging out in the vasculature. So I had a hard time kind of conceptual, I don't know why, just conceptualizing this whole Adam TS 13 thing, but it seems to make sense. So essentially, you know, it's that, so the von Willebrand's is extra long, right? And so that's what's hold, trying to grasp onto the platelets. 
Um, and it's the lack of the protein that normally would chop up the von Willebrands. That's the problem here. Yeah. And so von Willebrands is, it's a super, I think it's a super weird factor. It usually exists in this globular formation where it's kind of all bundled up. And in areas of high shear stress, like in the microvasculature or near the site of injury, it it can unravel. And when it unravels, sort of the internal part, which can interact with platelets, interact with collagen, and all these other important components of the clotting system, gets exposed. And in between sort of those really, really important components that can attach to and interact with the clotting system is um, the place where this ADMTS13 can come in and cleave. And so when ADMTS13, the ultra-large multimers are out there and sort of interacting with platelets in the vessel wall, it kind of, the protein gets stretched out and ADMTS13 can come and clip it before it starts, you know, massively activating the clotting system to form an occlusive thrombus. And if ADMTS13 is not there, if that sort of lawnmower isn't coming by to turn the grass, the grass grows uncontrolled, you end up with a, an occlusive thrombus in the microvasculature. And to the extent that, you know, red blood cells start getting sheared off on all these little thrombi. And that's how you end up with schistocytes. That's how you get the, the evidence of intravascular hemolysis. And if you think about this process happening in, again, all those really critical microvascular beds in the brain, in the kidneys, in the heart, you can imagine how that's going to that's gonna cause a lot of end organ issues and lead to pretty severe disease. Th- those are really great ways of thinking about this. I like both that you have this uncontrolled lawn that's activating platelets and causing a thrombus. And that also another way to think about it is you have a long arm multimers that's just catching a bunch of platelets. However, you want to make it easy for you to remember in your head, just knowing that we have these von Willenbrand multimers that are causing activation of platelets in the small vasculature, small vessels, which small vessels in your kidneys cause renal failure, small vessels in your brain cause your neurologic symptoms. And in general, when your body is activating all this clotting cascade, you also have cytokine release, which is why you get the fevers. The anemia, as as you form these clots in these small blood vessels, the red blood cells can't fit through and get sheared, and you get the schistocytes. And, you know, it, it's, it's however you want to remember it, these are two great ways of thinking about it. Another thing I wanted to highlight in a clinical way is that this is a type of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. We're throwing out a lot of terms here. And microangiopathic hemolytic anemia confused me for the absolute longest time, truly the longest time until I was a fellow. And I really got to understand what it meant. And what we're saying in microangiopathic hemolytic anemia is simply this, whether it's this problem where you don't have Adams TS13 or another issue where you're forming small clots in the vasculature, whatever the etiology is, doesn't matter. The bottom line is your red blood cells are shearing in your vasculature and that's a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. The small vessels, microangio, are, are causing shearing of the red blood cells, resulting in schistocytes, hemolysis, and anemia. And in all of these cases, you're, you're consuming platelets and you're forming clots, so you also have a thrombocytopenia. So that's a broad term is microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. TTP is a type of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. There are other things we'll talk about in future episodes that are um, called thrombotic microangiopathies, which are slightly different in the etiology, but result in the same symptoms because, again, you're forming small clots in the vasculature. Uh, Another example of microangiopathic hemolytic anemias in general, just wanted to mention this, in pregnancy, and we have a 38-year-old female here, this could be help is is an example of this. 
preeclampsia, you get schistocytes on your smear. That's another example of this. So microangiopathic hemolytic anemia is a broad category, and it's the easiest thing to remember. Microangio, small clots, regardless, who cares what caused it, resulting in hemolysis, and you form the clots. So you consumed your platelets, which resulted in thrombocytopenia. Yeah, and you know, that's that's really because the platelets are such an important component of the pathogenesis here. That's really the reason when we're concerned about one of these diseases being at play, we generally will avoid platelet transfusions. We'll try and say, hey, hold off from giving that platelet transfusion, even if they they have critically low platelets, even if they, she came in with a platelet count of 7,000, because it's it's not a consistent thing, but in the past, it has been observed that some patients will rapidly decompensate after a platelet transfusion uh, if they have a, a TMA like TTP. Now, it gets a lot trickier if somebody's actually having active bleeding as well, and that's just a case-by-case decision. That's, uh, that's something that's sort of beyond the scope of this podcast. But uh, generally speaking, you do not want to just transfuse pla- platelets prophylactically in these patients if you're concerned that there's a TMA at play. That's such a good reminder because in our previous thrombocytopenia episode, when we stratified, you know, platelet counts into kind of concerning, concerning, and very concerning, this definitely at 28,000 fits into the very concerning category. But, but I think a good reminder is again, we don't work on absolute numbers or absolute values. It's all about the clinical context. So in this case, we'd have to understand why the platelets are the way they are. The pathophysiology, which, which Fivik, that was an awesome reminder of why we see what we see. Um, I never really thought about it like that, but it makes perfect sense. And so definitely a good thing to remember. Don't prophylactically just give this person platelets. So Dan, I, I just kind of want to get your thoughts now. I mean, as our, as our benign hematology expert here, how would you go about working up this patient further now that you highly suspect TTP? Yeah. So, you know, there's a few different things you can do. Of course, like, like we said, that Adam TS-13 already off in the lab, right? So that's, that's not something, unfortunately, that's going to come back right away. But it's really, really important that it be there. But while you're waiting for that to come back, you can kind of help inform your suspicion using something called the plasmic score. And, and Vivek, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that too, right? Do you want to you go through it? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the plasmic score, and again, I want to reemphasize that anytime we have these scoring systems, they're not perfect, but this is a way that that was designed. And what what they did was they looked at patients with TTP and got a set of variables and said, let's create a score that tells us if you have a high probability of forming TTP, intermediate probability or low probability, similar to the the 4T score for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia that tells you whether you should send off that test. The plasmic score can can help in that way, but again, I want to reiterate that it's not perfect. So the plasmic score includes a platelet count, whether hemolysis is present, and that's based on a low haptoglobin, elevated reticulocyte count, elevated indirect bilirubin, whether the patient has active cancer, a history of solid organ transplant or a stem cell transplant, an MCV less than 90, normal coagulation, and, and what they d- did in this when they d- designed this score was it was an INR less than 1.5 so that you don't have a severe coagulopathy because oftentimes severe coagulopathy is more consistent with DIC rather than TTP, but that doesn't mean you can't have both at the same time. And interestingly, a creatinine less than two is, is, gives you a higher, what we call a plasmic score. And I thought that was interesting because it's, it's really the fact that we're recognizing these patients earlier and earlier that we're not letting them get to that 
bad kidney injury because we suspect this so quickly. So this plasma score helps you because we're in that early stage of detection. It's, it's not the end game of TTP. And so it's an interesting score, definitely not perfect. But Ronak, what was the score in this case for this patient? Yeah, so with the platelet count being less than 30, which is the cutoff, she got a point. She had evidence of hemolysis. Since she did not have active cancer, she actually gets a point for that. She doesn't have a history of a solid organ transplant, so she gets a point for that. Her MCV was not less than 90, so she didn't get any points there. Um, INR was less than 1.5, so she got a point there, and her creatinine was less than 2. And so if I do the math correctly, I think she scores a 6, which puts her in a very high probability category for TTP. So all the more reason why, as Dan said in this case, setting off that Adams TS-13 is super important. And on the flip side, I will say to, to Vivek's point about the utility of the score, you know, being on consults, you quite frequently get TTP question mark as the page uh, when people are asking. And, uh, you know, in addition to a, a quick chart review, using the plasma score to help stratify the situation is also kind of helpful because it also allows you to say, well, do I have time to go take care of the seven other consults that I probably have today and get back to this one? Or do I need to drop everything and go see this person now? So it's just a nice thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind. And we'll be sure to put a link to the uh, MD Calc version of this in our show notes. It's just a, a nice thing to kind of keep in your back pocket, i.e. on your phone, so that you can refer to that quite quickly. And I've definitely used this when I when I was on consults, for sure. If, if you have a very high score, very helpful. If you have a very low score, also very helpful. But if you're somewhere in between, it's a little bit more tricky and nuanced. But it's it's a really good thing to do because if you're on either end of the spectrum, it really helps you triage, like Ronick said. Yeah, and you know, I think that one of the key things here, again, the reason that our, our mortality rates are better is not just because we're recognizing this disease earlier and saying, yeah, this is probably what it is, but because that's allowing us to get uh, some empiric therapy started earlier too. And so given that this patient's score is so high that we're seeing schistos on her smear, I think I'm ready to pull the trigger on some empiric therapy. And TTP is a condition of ADAMTS13 deficiency. We have to get them some ADAMTS13. And fortunately, that ADAMTS13 is abundant in fresh frozen plasma. Again, most cases of acquired TTP are going to be antibody-driven. So the patient has an antibody in their serum that's inactivating or sort of taking out of commission their endogenous ADAMTS13. If you're at a center where plasma exchange is not available, where you can't just take out this person's plasma and replace it with fresh plasma, which would be kind of our standard of care, even giving FFP transfusions is useful. That That is a, a good temporizing measure in, in the case that you don't have access to immediate plasma exchange. Of course, you have to be careful uh, with volume issues if there's any cardiac involvement and, and just be mindful of all the things you would normally be mindful of when transfusing FFP. But it's a nice it's a nice thing to know you have as a stopgap measure if you're really in a jam. But that said, plasma exchange is the backbone of therapy. And that's because not only are you replacing their, this person's plasma uh, that's deficient in ADMTS13 with plasma that's rich in ADMTS13, but you're also taking away some of that circulating antibody that's doing this inactivation. To that same end, immune suppression is important here too. So you'll want to get this person on a high dose of steroids, a mig per kg of prednisone equivalent daily, and uh, at the same time that you're doing plasma exchange. And 
This is the reason it's so important to have that Atom TS-13 in the lab, to know that it's there. And carry it there yourself if you have to. Just make sure that that is in process before you do this, because once you start giving them plasma, you don't have an opportunity to go back in time and see whether or not their Atom TS-13 level is low. Uh, an Atom TS-13 level less than 10% is what you need to secure this diagnosis. And so if you, if you don't have that, you'll kind of be scratching your head and just continuing with this fairly invasive procedure of taking someone's plasma out and putting in new plasma every day until their platelet count starts to get better. Um, and so you really do need to know that this is what you were, in fact, dealing with the whole time. And Dan, something that I made the mistake of uh, the first time I saw a TTP was using the term plex, as in plasma phoresis, instead of talking about plasma exchange, which I think yeah. is which is really, really important. It seems they sound exactly the same, but in, mm -hmm. in the case of TTP, you want to use plasma exchange, that is replacing the person's plasma with donor plasma, as opposed to using plasma phoresis, um, which is when we remove plasma and replace it usually with albumin. This is such a such an important point. You know, oftentimes we do use those terms interchangeably because a lot of time if you're just trying to get rid of a, a troublesome antibody, then plex and apheresis or plasmapheresis and, and plasma exchange are sort of interchangeable. But in this case, they are not. And they are not the same thing. So plasmapheresis just refers to taking out person's plasma and putting back in albumin, putting something in with the same oncotic pressure as their plasma had, but none of those plasma proteins. And again, that's that's important because fresh frozen plasma is not an unlimited resource. It is a, a donated product. It is a tissue transfer from one person to another. Doing plasma exchange uses a ton of this limited resource that the hospital has because you're not replacing that plasma you take out with albumin. You're replacing it with FFP. And so oftentimes, yeah, you may even get a question from the blood bank. Hey, you know, is there any way we could do this with albumin instead of FFP? And, and certainly for that, those first few sessions, you really do need that full FFP replacement. You know, maybe later on in their course, you can negotiate where you do the first few units are with albumin and then you just flush in some plasma at the end. Again, more nuanced, and that's only if your blood bank is running critically low on plasma. I did have a case of this in residency where the person needed plex for so long that we ran the hospital practically dry of FFP. So we had to do kind of partial apheresis and then partial plasma exchange at the end. Because you need to replace that Atom TS-13, unfortunately, you're stuck with plasma. And another emergency measure that I wanted to mention in addition, so I think clearly we're stating here, we, when we suspect TTP, you don't necessarily have to have the diagnosis that the Atom TS-13 activity level is less than 10%. We start treatment right up front if you have a high suspicion with plasma exchange, replacing the Atom TS-13 that was missing, and filtering out an autoantibody that's resulting in the destruction of Atom TS-13, and giving steroids, which again is preventing that autoimmune attack. Another thing that you can do, so we talked about the end organ damage that can happen in in this in these cases of, of severe microangiopathic hemolytic anemia that you can have renal dysfunction, but you can also have severe neurological deficits, whether that's confusion or even stroke-like symptoms or stroke. And you can also have heart attacks. You can have small vessel occlusion in your coronary arteries that causes an, an end stemmy and a real end stemmy. And one of the things that's a new drug that came out is something called caplicizumab. 
And this is something that, again, while we're talking about this, we're not talking about the long-term management of TTP, but in that emergent situation. What this drug is, is an antibody that blocks the interaction between von Willenbrand factor and platelets. So it doesn't allow that, that interaction to occur, and it doesn't allow thrombus formation to happen. So even though you have that, however you wanted to think about it, that line of von Willebrand or that long arm capturing platelets, the platelets can't stick there and they can't form clot. And so it's a, it's an antibody that prevents that binding and it's called caplicizumab. It's not routinely used and we reserve it for patients at our institution who, which is how it was studied in, in a, in a phase three trial. And that's when they have things like troponin elevation or severe neurological dysfunction, things like that. We start this medicine called caplicizumab in addition to the things that we talked about. So this is, you know, this is also great to hear because this is kind of the approach that we took to looking after this patient. So we had sent off the Adams TS13, just given the high plasmic score, the clinical situation, and we ended up having to pull the trigger on needing to do the plasma exchange that night. And so, you know, in this case, luckily the patient didn't have any evidence of MI or thrombosis or anything like that. So we were able to defer the use of uh, caplicizumab, but we did start steroids just given that autoimmune or at least concern for that autoimmune component to the, to the patient's overall picture. I, what I, what I really wanted our listeners to take away, uh, from this episode is just the acute management of these patients that come in with TTP. You know, the nuances of like how much plasma exchange, when we decide to also add things like rituximab to someone's treatment modality, those are nuances for more um, longer term management. And, and guys, if it's okay with you, I think we should maybe talk about that in a future episode. I think that sounds great. And we'll, yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the data and, and things like that in, yeah. a, in a long term management episode. And just have our listeners take away how do you manage this acutely? Yeah, yeah, because I because I think like truly the the acute management is so important, especially in our um, in our series that we're doing right now. So ultimately, you know, the Adam TS thirteen did come back. We have the luxury at Rouleau University Medical Center of having these done in house, and so it only takes you know uh, about a day or so to come back, depending on the time that you get it to the lab. That's not necessarily the case everywhere, so we are lucky for in regards to that. But um, in this case, the patient did have an, have an Adams CS13 less than five. So that was consistent with this uh, autoimmune type of um, Adams CS13 deficiency, which uh, is the underlying mechanism for TTP. And long story short, luckily, this patient ended up doing fine in the end. But again, I think it was largely due to us just being so much more knowledgeable about the disease now and and having a lower threshold to intervene understanding the high rate of mortality. Well, any final thoughts? Be careful when chopping the sides of an onion. Yeah, I, I will second that. That is important advice. And I know Vivek's been pushing all kinds of beverages on prior episodes. I think last time it was Topo Chico. I'm going to go with the OG and give a shout out to LaCroix for uh, powering me through this episode. Someone had to do it. We got to get all that sponsorship. That's right. (laughs) Working on all that sponsorship. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.